I'll say thank you to everybody else in a minute, but uh, before that, uh, I'd like to say something about time. Uh, it's not the topic of the conference, but time is, uh, is everywhere, and we are in time. And as you know, uh, the Sufis call themselves uh, the children of the moment, or in Arabic it works out, uh, a Sufi ibn waqtihi. That is, the Sufi is the child of the moment. So, and in Kushairi, in the epistle of Kushairi, which almost uh, every Sufi uh, reading Arabic uh, has uh, studied, uh, there is a chapter about waqt, which is the term for time, uh, and it says there, and then later on, Ibn Arabi, of course, picked, uh, picked it up and developed the idea that you are what your time is. If your time is joy, you are joy. If your time is grief, you are grief. And uh, if your time is um, perplexity, which is, seems to me to be the topic of the day, or at least... Uh, um, Stephen talked about it, and I'm going to talk about it, and uh, probably also more. Uh, then you are just perplexed or confused. And to me, I'd like to say that it's um, Saturday today. We are in Oxford um, at the Wolfson, so they are very clear uh, parameters to the place and the time, but yesterday I came from Israel. And it was a very confusing day because the plane was supposed to, to, to take off at one time and then there was a delay, unexpected delay. And of course I had to work out because Richard or Cecilia was supposed to come and pick me up from the airport, so how am I going to notify them that I'm going to be delayed and so on and so forth. And thank God for modernity or for hypermodernity, because there is WhatsApp and we could sort of correspond via the WhatsApp and know what's going on. And eventually I arrived and, and Richard was there, just there, as I went out of the uh, uh, arrival area and took me and I was very, very tired. So my time was tiredness, fatigue. I was, I probably Richard was tired too, but anyway, we started to uh, um, enliven ourselves through talking. And then when I got to the room at the college and I put my luggage, I said to myself, and now dinner? I could absolutely collapse and there's dinner. But there's dinner and I changed and went out to dinner and there was another time. There was another time, there was a time of joy and meeting and friendship and all of a sudden I woke up, totally woke up um, and, and that was not my doing or any particular effort that I made, the time <clears throat> changed and it changed because of the group, that, the companionship that we were together. And so I want to say thank you. I mean, thank you for the whole thing. Thank you for last night. Thank you for <laughs> taking me from the airport and so on and so forth. It's a great, great pleasure to be here. So this is my introduction. But then there is another introduction. And that's 
also personal. I come from Israel, and it's a very, very disturbed place. The whole Middle East is very disturbed. I wouldn't know where to begin, and that's not the topic that I'm going to discuss, but in a way it is, because I feel, and that's personal, I'm not making it as a proclamation, one cannot divorce myself from time. It's not possible. I mean, I find a lot of solace and salvation, actually, in reading Ibn Arabi these days. But it feels to me that there is something there beyond and behind just the comfort of doing something which works on the heart, on the soul, and, and so on and so forth. So I'd like to start by showing you uh, this presentation and let the images talk for themselves, but here and there I will also supply them with some words. So first of all, you see our beautiful planet. And the light is thrown on this troubled area. You see, I don't know if you can see. If I do this, can you see what I'm pointing at? Yes, yes. okay. So you see it's this area which is so lit in this picture. But there's also darkness around. And the darkness, I'm not using it in any sense as a kind of description of something wrong versus something good. We are in light and we are in darkness. And like you said, uh, Stephen, you cannot say, oh, take me out of the light into the darkness or take me out of the darkness into the light. These things cannot be really, really... I mean, when we make the distinction, it's superficial and it's, it, it is artificial. So, um, now, I'm to, to use this. The, uh, which one? The right there. Okay, so here's another picture. This is a picture of the Earth's atmosphere. I think it was published by uh, NASA or NASA? How do you NASA. NASA, yes. And kind of to show how amazingly thin the atmosphere is, actually. You know, so there is Earth and there is the bit of atmosphere, and then there is darkness. And again, the juxtaposition of these things, which you cannot say actually where we are, in light or in darkness, and what they are. So let it sink into your imagination, this um, image. Now we come to another image. I simply liked it. I don't know if it's so poignant as the first one, but the, this is the, the uh, aurora lights, the northern lights. And it's fantastic because it comes from nowhere. You know, we can work out where did, did it come, but as a phenomenon, it comes like unexpectedly. All of a sudden, we, we are surrounded by these phenomenal um, images of light in darkness. And there are plenty more. If you, if you go on the internet and you look for the Northern Light, you find amazing images. And this is getting us nearer to the topic of Ibn Arabi. These are the two seas. Now, in fact, these two seas, you know, the Majma al-Bahrain, which I'm going to talk about more, is the conflation or the meeting of the two seas. Amazingly, 
there is this picture, and I don't know, somebody once told me where it was, where these two seas are, and why is there one sea adjacent to the other, but it's very clear that they are apart, and only a very, very thin line is dividing between them. So this is not an artful, imaginative thing. It's there somewhere, and if anybody knows where it is, please let me know, because I knew and I forgot. Uh, and that has to do with the uh, Quranic surah. Is it clear, more or less? Can you, no, it's not clear? Yes. Oh, it is. Okay, so Quran surah 55, verses 19 to 21 say, uh, He led forth the two seas that they might meet together, yet between them is a barrier. The Arabic word, of the, at least the Quranic, I don't think that it's Arabic actually, but the Quranic word is barzakh, which they may not transgress. Which then of your Lord's bounties will you deny? I don't know why it came twice. I mean, something wrong with the uh, way it was written. In the Quran it is just once. Uh, and then there is another verse. How do I go a little bit lower? Just, just to... Oh. Um, because it doesn't have the whole thing here, and I don't know if I do. What, what do I do to not to move to another, just to move down the text? Uh, uh, I don't want to. Is it this one, the left one? No, I should no. think it is probably. Oh, it's just here. Uh, I don't know how you do it. I, I know, no. I know, actually. Go back. Go, you go back on yes. the, that side. Go back. Here? Yes. No, it didn't go back. I think I think we need to. Anyway, anyway, uh, it will come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This way we will see it. I think. Uh, yeah, and um, now we can. Uh, yes, in this position we can you, move it you up. Can put it down. No, no it'll from be here. More sideways. Ah, here we are. Can you see the whole thing here? Yes. So. Uh, Quran um, Surah 18, number 60 says, And when Moses said to his page, I will not give up until I reach the meeting of the two seas, though I go on for many years. And I'll come back to that later um, in, in the talk. But now we want to go um, down here. This is a calligraphy of this verse. It actually says Majma al-Bahrain. And again, I don't have the name of the artist. I wrote it down, but it doesn't come here. Ahmad Mustafa. That's the one. That's the one. Ahmad Mustafa. So this is a beautiful calligraphy of the Majma al-Bahrain verse. Um, and now, i just like to show you a few opposites, like we saw the dark and the light. And this is the lushness of nature and the world. I mean, there's water, there's greenness, there's flow, there's beautiful beauty uh, and growth. And what happens here? It's dry, the river has dried. It's not the same river, of course, but it's just uh, one of these things that rivers do dry up and the land becomes very dry and nothing grows and this is also part of uh, our existence. 
And now we move to that very, very painful picture, which is on the one hand side, you see again, I will try to point out, does it work? Can you see? This is Gaza. This is Gaza. This is the town of Gaza or the city of Gaza. And this is the fence. And these are beautiful, fertile fields. And somewhere here, there are Israeli um, uh, um, places which between the two, there is constant, constant struggle. And you see the fence. This is also a barzakh, something that is between two things. Now you can see this is uh, Palestinian women crying and shouting and mourning. And here are Israeli mothers crying and shouting and mourning. And this is Ibn Arabi's tomb, which I don't know what the situation with it is now, because it's in Damascus. It's in a perfect situation. Thank God for that. But all around it, it's not perfect. Even though a few months ago, a bomb fell right in the courtyard. Really, really. Thank you very much, because I was wondering what this is it. This is it. And it's a kind of, you see, it's not in a remote part of Damascus. I have never been there, but I was told that it's very much part of the marketplace. It's near market. And, and so there are cars here. That was taken, of course, many, many years ago. But that's Ibn Arabi. And that's what we are here for, to talk about Ibn Arabi. And, uh, and I think if we can have the lights on, because I can hardly see anyway, but without the light of knowledge, even less so. And so they, they, uh, maybe we should leave the presentation just, just in case. Okay. Just in case, um, yeah. So, at the threshold of writing this paper, I stand perplexed. Who wouldn't, in view of the formidable corpus of Ibn al-Arabi's works and the daunting volume of the scholarly discussions on him? But the bulk of this literary corpora is the least of my concerns. It is Ibn Arabi's visionary perspective in front of which I stand perplexed. Ibn Arabi is a master of creating unique grand patterns, conceptual as well as linguistic, by interlacing diverse themes and syntactical patterns together and unraveling his um, complex and interconnected lace work and sorting out neatly its fine threads often result in an obfuscated view, unwieldy style and watered down account. Still, the work of scholars is precisely this, to sort, classify, paraphrase, compare, analyze, and reduce. Moreover, whereas Ibn Arabi's writing stems from an inclusive visionary perspective that transcends conventional forms and structures, his interpreter, by definition, must limit her reproductions 
to the level of the familiar and comprehensible. This is bound to be frustrating, especially when the binary cognition of the interpreter is the tool by which she faces Ibn Arabi's barzakh, what I have termed his tertiary imaginative vision. Is scholarly hermeneutics suitable at all to review a visionary writing such as Ibn Arabi's? Can we see what he sees in the unitive perspective from which he sees it? Ibn Arabi often warns his readers that to understand what he is writing, one should be either a mystic, that is, one who possesses visionary seeing, min ahlil kashf, or a pure and simple believer, min ahl al mu'minin. Those who belong to either of these two groups may follow his view without speculative argumentations or sophisticated interpretations. But for most, the experience of reading him will result in the perplexity, hayra, about which I'm complaining. Out of frustration and perplexity, the interpreter may relegate Ibn Arabi's writing to the category of apophasis, the language of unsaying, of paradox, of negative theology. But would such classification help make the objects of Ibn Arabi's vision satisfyingly meaningful? For all these inhibitions, I ask myself why not give up from the outset writing on Ibn Arabi, either in general or on any specific theme? Well, there is an answer. And it is simple. His writing is magnetically captivating. And his visionary perspective alluring. Not unlike a detective's obsession with deciphering the mystery behind a complex crime. His daring syntactical structure and the intricacy and mistiness of his writing seem to suggest that behind them hides a field of truths, haqa'iq, and meanings, ma'ani, worth unraveling. If only one could see it with Ibn Arabi's eyes. One mystery in particular has lured me to search for a meaning. It concerns Ibn Arabi's mysterious barzakh, the middle, the third principle which challenges and even overrides the binary structure of our cognitive faculties. Through the inbuilt predilection to hover between the yes and the no, between viewing something as positive and its opposite as negative, between an I and an other, our conceptions and ideologies, even the most precious among them, are built on dichotomies. Ibn Arabi's barzakh is that fine line which belongs neither to the side of the yes nor to the side of the no. How are we to conceive it? And since our minds are bound by spatial configurations, where is this line to be found? Sensing that at the heart of the barzakh 
nests the key to Ibn Arabi, all-embracing outlook. I've been driven, despite my inhibitions, to ponder this enigma from Ibn al-Arabi's perspective, to enter his mind, as it were. In my attempt at making some sense of these questions, I have found it helpful to juxtapose various passages from Ibn Arabi's writing and use them as road signs. I shall start by introducing the Barzakh in Ibn Arabi's own words. In chapter 72 of the Meccan Revelations, the Futuhat, he writes, and I believe we'll have the text for the workshop if we uh, would like to look at them. So, he writes, the middle, that which separates between two sides and makes them distinct, be distinguished from one another, is more hidden than they are. For example, the line that separates between the shadow and the sun, or the barrier, the barzakh, between the two seas, the sweet one and the bitter one, or that which separates between black and white, we know that there is a separating line there, but the eye does not perceive it. The intellect acknowledges it, though it does not conceive of what it is. Namely, it does not conceive its whatness. By the two seas, end of quote, by the two seas, Ibn Arabi alludes, of course, to the sweet one and the bitter one of the Quranic verse 2553, which we saw. The verse runs as follows, and it is he who has released the two seas, one fresh and sweet and one salty and bitter, and he placed between them a barrier, and a prohibiting partition. These two seas, undeniably, are contrary to one another, entirely different from one another, characterized by opposite attributes, yet contiguous, sharing an imaginary line which keeps them apart and prevents the waters from mixing. The features of sweet water versus bitter water are thus kept intact thanks to a barzakh, which Ibn Arabi describes as more hidden than they are. What is and where is this hidden line that carries out concurrently two contradictory functions, separating between two opposites, yet holding them together? The two C's of Quran 2553 are obviously associated with the two C's of Quran 1860. The group of verses 60 to 82 of Surah 18, the Surah of the Cave, Surah Al-Kahf, presents one of the most enigmatic passages in the Quran. The protagonist of this Quranic passage is Moses. He and his servant are supposed to meet an enigmatic person whom God names one of our servants, Abdan min ibadina, and to whom God has given special knowledge, min ladunna ilman. 
The meeting place is identified only by being the confluence of the two seas, Majma'il Bahrain. Apparently, the Quranic verses are not explicit about this. Moses sets out to seek the enigmatic servant of God at this wondrous place in order to learn from him the divine knowledge, al-ilm al-laduni, bestowed on him. This is why Moses is resolved to search for this person until he reaches where the two seas, Majma al-Bahrain, though he vows, I may march on for ages. Moses thus sets out to face three mysteries, a place, a person, and a knowledge. And all these are a preamble to the later stage of his search in which he will have to face odd, seemingly unreasonable and unjust deeds performed by this servant of God. And this is in verses 66 to 82, about which I'm not going to talk today. Indeed, Surah 18 is replete with wonders and enigmas, and thus concurs with Ibn Arabi's pursuit of the extraordinary and mysterious Barzakh. The enigmatic Barzakh of the Quranic verses is, from Ibn Arabi's perspective, a paradox, a contradiction in terms, that which separates between two sides and makes them be distinguished from one another, and yet is more hidden than they are. These are Ibn Arabi's words. More hidden, that is to say, belongs to an imperceptible dimension, the dimension of the unseen, or that which can be revealed only by means of the imagination, al-khayal. Here, in paradoxical terms, is how Ibn Arabi describes the barzakh in chapter 63 of the Meccan Revelation. And I quote Ibn Arabi. Since the barzakh is something that separates what is knowable and what is unknowable, non-existent and existent, intelligible and unintelligible, negated and affirmed, it has been given the term barzakh. In itself, it is intelligible, though there is nothing there but imagination. For imagination is neither existent nor non-existent, neither known nor unknown, neither negated nor affirmed. End of quote. By endorsing the linguistic or nominal validity of the barzakh, he says it has been given the term barzakh. Ibn Arabi asserts that he said it has an ontic existence of souls while immediately negating it and saying, I quote again from Ibn Arabi, when you grasp it, being intelligent, you will know that you have grasped an existing thing on which your gaze has fallen while you also know categorically with proof that there is nothing there to begin with and in principle.
that there is nothing there to begin with, and in principle, I, I'm sorry. What is this thing for which you have affirmed an ontic existence? The Arabic is Shayiya Wujudiya. It's like he's talking in modern terms, except in Arabic. And at the moment of your affirmation, you have denied it. End of quote. With such contradictory attributes of the barzakh and the perception of it, Ibn Arabi takes us to the field of paradox, to the mystical languages of unsaying, to borrow the phrasing of Michael Sell's brilliant title. But beyond this comparative classification, may we not consider the meaning of the epistemological and existential challenges with which Ibn Arabi presents us in these passages. May we not ask how to see features of objects such as the 2C. Sorry, I have to read it again. May we not ask how to see the barzakh, while with our binary perception, we can only perceive the contrasting features of objects such as the 2Cs. And consequently, how to know what is between or beyond the two Cs? Is there anything beyond our binary perception? And if so, what is it? And another question lurks in the vision of the Barzakhi confluence of the two Cs. From this third dimensional perspective, do the separate identities of the two Cs merge and annihilate in the Barzakh and hence lose the identifying individual features of sweetness and bitterness? Or are their ontological identities kept intact notwithstanding such conflation? Ibn Arabi, it seems to me, encourages us to ponder these questions, since by saying, and I quote again, when you grasp it, being intelligent, you will know, as well as, quoting again, the intellect acknowledges it, though it does not conceive of what it is. Namely, it does not conceive of it whatness. That's in chapter 72. He suggests that the intellect can grasp something of this tertian universe, at least the enigma behind our existential epistemology, epistemological grasp of reality. In the attempt to grasp the elusive barzakh that emerges from the Quranic passages above, I muse over another facet of its polar nature and ask, being a majma, a conflation, is the barzakh a coincidence of opposites? Can we qualify it with this concept borrowed from the field of the study of religions? Now, on the linguistic level, al-jam bayna didain is precisely identical to the Latin term coincidencia oppositorum. Looked at from the Arabic terminology, majma, as in majma al-Bahrain, shares the root jama'a with jam, 
Lexically, majma denotes a place of coming together, and jam, the act of gathering and holding diverse things together, as well as the state that results from such an act, collectedness, aggregation, unity. In Ibn Arabi's writing, jam and its antonym, farq, separation, differentiation, are cardinal concepts upon which his understanding of the God-creation relationship is built. Their juxtaposition indicates indeed a coincidence of opposites. Notably, Ibn Arabi often quotes a saying which he ascribes to the 9th century Sufi Abu Sa'id al-Kharaz. When Abu Sa'id was asked, by what means have you known God? He answered, God is only known by bringing together the opposites. Bijam'ahi bayna didayn. Then he recited, he is the first and the last, the apparent and the hidden. And he has knowledge of all things. So, how does Ibn Arabi perceive of the coincidence? How does he perceive the nature of reality in the realm of the Barzakh? This is, my friends, really for me the most intriguing question because if we follow even from outside the mystical path, we cannot avoid this question, I think. What happens to the differentiated identities which are held there together? Or does he leave it out of his existential map as a transcendent territory to which no man has access? In pursuing these questions, I find help in another passage from the Meccan Revelations. Chapter 24 of the Meccan Revelations is not a long chapter, but it has a lengthy title. Here is the rendering of its first part. The 24th chapter concerning the knowledge that derives from the ontological sciences. Al-Uloom al in case you suspect that I wanted to transcribe it into modern terms, and the wonder that it contains. That's the part of the title. Indeed, the chapter deals with various ontological themes that can be cumulatively described as concerning the relationship of God, qua king and owner, Malik, with man and the world, qua kingdom and property, Mulk, subsumed under God's kingship and ownership. But the picture that Ibn Arabi paints in this chapter is not of a hierarchical relationship. What interests him specifically is the fate of the property, the owned, the created, us, within this interwoven existence. Or, to put it differently, how can the property hold on to its differentiated individual identity and attributes within such a close-knit relationship with its owner? Here, 
Towards the last third of the chapter, Ibn Arabi introduces another concept worth contemplating, God's expansiveness. At-Tawasu al-Ilahi. He writes, and I quote, God's expansiveness entails that God is he who gave everything its creation. That's Quran 2050. And distinguished each and everything in this world by this creative decree. He is he who distinguished it from any other this is the individual unity of each and everything. Hence, no two things are merged in one mixture. There is nothing but the individual unity of each and everything. Never do two things merge where differentiation has occurred. From this point, you will know how the large can mount the small and the broad the narrow, without the broad becoming narrow and the narrow broad. In other words, nothing in their contrasting states changes. Concerning this, Abu Sa'id al-Kharaz said, I told you he quotes him very often, God is only known by bringing opposites together. He meant, says Ibn Arabi, from one face, not from diverse references. End of quote. In this extraordinary passage, Ibn Arabi asserts the singular individuality and particularity of every existing thing. Every created thing is unique. God does not clone. Hence, nothing really merges with anything to the point of losing one's preordained individual and distinct identity. Unlike some theologians and philosophers, Ibn Arabi does not subscribe to the theory of generalized, abstract, isolated ideas as a transcendent exemplar of all that is. Everything that is has its own individual blueprint and its existence is concrete and tangible inasmuch as its fullness is hidden and unknown. Nothing is the same as anything else. And yet, all are embraced by God who thus becomes known according to Al-Kharaz saying in the supporting Quranic proof as a coincidentia oppositorum. This is the embrace of the first last apparent hidden totality in an inclusive unity of polar opposites. This unity is the one face by which God is known. Not unlike the proverbial elephant who, in order to be known qua elephant, must be known through all its parts and members. At the same time, none of the individual attributes is obliterated in this knowing. 
Each and everything has its place in the unity of opposites. Thus, the coincidencia oppositorum is not a fuzzy mixture of different aspects and attributes, but a unity in which diverse parts coexist. Such unity, in all its fullness, suggests Ibn Arabi, is the paradigm for everything that is, and it allows for wonders and possibilities beyond the grasp of the binary thought. And to conclude, the ethical implications of this vision are far-reaching, especially at the global moment in which this essay is written. There is nothing more remote in this moment than the vision of a coincidence of opposites, seen from the tertiary dimension of Ibn al-Arabi's Barzakh. Ours is a world of binary thinking, dichotomies, polarization, opposing opinions and antagonistic value systems. Right is contrary to wrong, good contrary to bad, just to unjust, sacred to profane, and right, good, just, and sacred are praiseworthy, whereas wrong, bad, unjust, and profane are blameworthy. In our world existence, wherever we are, wars of identities and values are raging from unrelenting convictions all round, right, left, and center. From far from us is to know how to hold on to our singular individual identities without devouring the individual identities of others. They seem to us set on cancelling us and each one out. Hence, to preserve our identity demands that we defend it against its enemies at all costs, ironically, to the point of sacrificing it. When we tenaciously cling to what in our fancy makes our identity, we are perceived as loyal. When out of the fold we pledge the viability and validity of other identities, we are perceived as traitors. We pay lip service to the politics of the other, but culturally, religiously, socially, and politically, in the name of identities and under the umbrella of values, ideologies, and dogmas, a culture of blame, self-righteousness, and victimhood thrives. It is never I who is responsible for this or that. It is always you or another, and so on and so forth. The state of dynamic perplexity vis-à-vis the shifting faces of reality and the practice of seeing with three eyes derives from Ibn al-Arabi's vision of the Barzakh. And it suggests 
that the two-dimensional and binary limits of our cognition miss out on glimpsing a larger, more inclusive and unitive picture. Ibn al-Arabi's perspective teaches that beyond the dichotomies at the root of our cultural, religious, moral, and political viewpoints, and even beyond the benign slogans of peace and love, that stretches a larger and wider perspective. If you wish, you can call it mystical, of a land of marvels, where the large can mount the small and the broad the narrow, without the broad becoming narrow and the narrow broad. From this perspective, the singularity of all things becomes both an apparent and a marvelous phenomenon. This singularity is not lost within the mesh of variant and contra contrasting identities. It is never annihilated in what is named the oneness of being or the coincidence of opposites. The water of the bitter sea remains bitter and that of the sweet sea remains sweet in view of the divine expansiveness, nothing is lost, for it allows that each and everything exists its singular and concrete existence, while coexisting even along its opposite. Thank you.